Today's scripture reading is found in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we'll be reading verses 11 through 24. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Insomuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what was by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Thank you, Steve. So I, I want you to imagine here for a moment, I want you to imagine that you are walking down the you're walking down the streets of New York City, okay? Imagine you're walking down the streets of New York City, uh, and you're walking down, I don't know, we'll say 10th Avenue south of 57th Street. Okay, so somewhere around that area. You're walking down the streets of New York, and, uh, oh, but here's the thing. It's not 2018, it's 1852. Okay? So if you were walking down the streets of Manhattan in 1852, things would be a little bit different, right? Uh, there would be, well, there wouldn't be any cars. Uh, there would just be horses and carriages, I guess. I don't really know a lot about how they got around. They're walking around that. I want you to imagine that you're walking down the streets, 10th Avenue, in the year 1852. And what's interesting is that in that time period, if you, if you saw an individual coming towards you named Kevin Hanley, you actually might be very suspicious of Kevin Hanley. Today we are continuing in our series on the book of Romans. Uh, it is a series which we began several months ago, 
and we're going to take a break from it actually in a couple of weeks. We're going to start the season of Advent, and we're going to take a break from the book of Romans, and we're going to go into a series, and the title of the series that we're going to be doing in Advent is Wait. We're going to do a series called Wait, and the whole point of the series will be to encourage us to learn how to wait. Uh, We are a people that are not very good at waiting. We do not like to wait. We often don't have to wait for many of the things that we have in life, things that you used to have to wait for. I remember I used to have to wait uh, until uh, I could get in the car and drive and rent a movie. Now, oh, now I don't have to wait. I can just... I can just turn it on right away, right? There are so many ways in which we no longer have to wait. I, I remember my, my father telling me a story, <clears throat> telling me about when he took a boat from Australia to England, and he had to wait, it was like at least a month. I don't know how long it took him. He had to wait to get to England, because that, that was the only way to get there was by boat. He didn't realize that he was living at the end of an era now you, you get on a plane and, and pour us, maybe you have to wait, you know, hours or something like that. So we're, so we're not used to having to wait. And so what we're going to be doing in the season of Advent is looking at this, the importance of being able to wait, that I think the season of Advent is actually there to train us to wait, to help us to learn how to wait, that waiting is an important part of, of the Christian life, right? That, that one of the things that I'll often say is that Christians, we need to train ourselves to say, instead of saying, why is this happening right now to me? To say, how long until God, you help me? How long until you come and help me? It's a different way of thinking. Instead of, why is it like this? Why does that have to be like this? You say, how long? And how long acknowledges that maybe you have to wait. Maybe you have to wait. And so it's going to be a, a series in which we're going to be looking at the importance of learning how to wait. So we're, we're going to begin that here in a couple of weeks. But today we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans. And as we've seen, the book of Romans is a letter. It was a letter that was written by a man named Paul. He was writing um, in the mid-50s um, AD. This is, uh, scholars say it was probably written around the year 55 AD. So this is about 20, 25 years after the life and ministry of Jesus. And he's writing to the early Christian communities in the city of Rome. And as we've seen, there is this this main theme uh, we've called this series Good News, that what Paul wants them to know, what he wants to remind them of and help to unpack for them is what this good news is. What is this good news? This, This good news that has come in the person of Jesus. And and it sort of unfolds, this good news sort of unfolds throughout uh, the, the book of Romans and comes to greater clarity in, in different places. And last week, we came to a passage that, that really, in many respects, could be seen as almost the climax of the book of Romans. It is a passage that, that really gets at the heart of what this good news is. And that's what we saw last week. I, I would actually encourage you, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to the message from last week because that's a message that gets right at the heart of what the Christian faith is really all about. And I'll just summarize for you briefly what it is. 
The good news, the good news that we saw last week, if you want to boil it down, one way of understanding what the good news is, is simply this. That is that you cannot save yourself. Salvation comes from God. You cannot save yourself. Salvation comes from God. And last week we unpacked what what do we mean by salvation? What is salvation? It's sort of a churchy word, right? It's a churchy word. Who really uses the word salvation outside of the church? And so I, I tried to summarize just very uh, briefly what, what salvation is, or at least one way of looking at what salvation is. And what I said is that a person who is saved is a person whose worth and identity, as well as their joy and their pleasure, are secure. A person who is fully saved is a person, a person who has experienced the fullness of salvation is a person whose worth and identity as well as their joy and their pleasure are secure. And, and what we saw is that we go through life and we, we spend virtually every minute of every hour of every day trying to save ourselves trying to establish our worth and our identity, trying to procure for ourselves joy and pleasure through the things that we do. And we looked at a number of the ways in which we do this. We will do this through our career. People whose identity, their worth and their identity is completely caught up in their, in their career, right? I, I mean, just, I don't know that this is true of him at all. Some of you probably, some of you might know that I'm a New England Patriots fan. And I... I, I sympathize for Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots, because I just get this sense, like, I don't know if he could ever retire, because he, his identity from, this is an outsider looking in, this is not really a fair judgment, I don't know him at all, but I'm suspecting he might be an individual where his worth and his identity is completely wrapped up in his career. He's the kind of guy that will probably never retire, because what on, his worth and his value comes from that, and, I, and again, that might not be true of him at all, that's just an outsider outsider's perspective looking in, but I have to wonder how many of us is that true of, right? On one end, you, you really, you want to retire, you're done with it, right? you're, you're done. But then on the other hand, like that's kind of who you are. That's your identity, that's your worth. And I think a lot of people seek to find their worth and identity in their, in their career. Uh, we, we find our worth and our identity, our joy and our pleasure through all kinds of things. Our career, uh, of course, we can find it through religion. We talked about that last week. Some of us find our worth and our identity through religion, and so our worth and our identity is wrapped up in our religious performance. And so this is where we, we beat ourselves up because we don't go to church enough or we don't pay attention enough or, or we don't read our Bibles enough or we don't serve enough, right? And, and it's never enough no matter what we do. Or if we do, we get prideful. See, we get prideful and we look down on those who don't, right? So those, those two sides of the same coin, pride and insecurity, they, they're all wrapped up in this idea of finding your worth and your identity in something, and you can find this in religion, right? And some people, they try to find not simply their worth and their identity, but their joy and their pleasure. They seek to find their joy and their pleasure in their religion. And what happens when you try to find your joy and your religion, excuse me, your joy and your pleasure through your religion is that you're never satisfied with your religious experience, right? You're, you're, so in other words, if you're, if you're a person who's looking to find your worth and your identity in church, uh, then, then you're never good enough. 
You're never good enough. No matter what you do, it's never enough. But if you're trying to find your joy and your pleasure through your church, then the church is never good enough, right? It's one of the two. If you're trying to find your worth and your identity in your religious performance, then you're never good enough, right? You never do enough for the church. You never serve enough, right? But if you're trying to find your joy and your pleasure through your church, then your church is never good enough, right? The, the music isn't good enough. The preaching isn't good enough. The programs aren't good enough, right? See, these are all ways in which we try to find our salvation through religion. So we talked about, about that last week. We talked about finding it in our career. We talked about finding it in stuff. We try to find our identity, our worth, and our identity through stuff. Uh, or you try to find your joy and your pleasure through your stuff, Right? So for some people, uh, the individual who is trying to find their joy and their pleasure through their nice car, right? They, they, they just love their nice car. They love it. They love driving it. They love what it feels like. They love taking it out on the highway. I mean, they just love the way it feels in their hands as they're driving. They get a lot of joy and pleasure out of it. And then there are some people that they don't, may not even really enjoy driving it. They just like people knowing that they own it. Right, So now their worth and their identity is in the fact that they own this particular car. Right, I mean, we could go on and on and on about how we try to procure salvation. We try to save ourselves, and of course, what we saw is it never works. Ultimately, it, it never works. It ultimately will leave you empty that salvation comes from God. And we see in the heart of the gospel, we see in the death and the resurrection, the answer to this need for salvation, that in, in Christ's death on the cross, we discover that our worth and our identity is secure because of his grace. That he loves us, irrespective of what we do. We don't have to do anything to establish our worth and our identity. That's seen in the cross, where we see the grace of God who loves us no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. And then in the resurrection, we see that he is the one who has victory over death. He is the one who has control over life. He is the one who can truly give us our joy and our pleasure. And so we find it through him, through faith in him. Salvation comes from God. That's what we looked at last week. And then what we, what we also saw, or what emerges throughout the book of Romans, is that this salvation is available to all. It's available to all all people. And, and this is important to notice because we looked back last week, we looked at Rome, or yeah, no, two weeks ago, <coughs> excuse me, we looked <coughs> at Romans <coughs> chapter nine. <coughs> I made a comment last week about how sickness doesn't, doesn't get me down, right? I don't, I don't miss church for sickness. And now I'm just getting hit really bad and I'll probably have to miss a week. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, so a couple weeks ago, we looked at, at chapter nine and chapter 9 is a very uncomfortable passage, right? Um, so it's one of the more uncomfortable passages in Scripture because what it seems to suggest is that God has abandoned his people. It seems to suggest that God has abandoned Israel. It's a very uncomfortable passage. Now, of course, as we saw in that passage, when it talks about him, quote, abandoning Israel, he's not singling out Israel as somehow bad or worse than everybody else. Actually, what we discover, if you said it, in the larger context of the biblical narrative, really, it's just putting Israel back on the same playing field as everybody else. 
that this, the narrative of the Bible beginning in Genesis 3 is essentially that because of Adam's sin, because humanity has turned away from God, all of humanity has been kicked out of the garden. All of humanity has in that sense been abandoned. And so when Paul starts talking about Israel being abandoned, he's not singling them out. He's actually just saying they're back to where everybody else is. But then, of course, it goes on, and this is, this is the point, what, what will emerge, especially next week, especially next week, we will we'll focus in on this very centrally, and that is that this abandonment is not permanent. God's abandonment of his people is not permanent. And, and that's actually what begins to emerge here in this passage, uh, beginning in verse 11. He says, again, did they stumble, did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And he says, no. Not at all, right? So he's hinting at this reality that, that this abandonment is not permanent. And this is why he then goes on and uses this illustration of an olive tree. And I don't, you know, I don't know a lot about trees, to be honest with you. But apparently in ancient times, and maybe even today, uh, gardeners, olive gardeners would actually cut off branches intentionally and then graft them into other branches or into other trees. So for example, if you had a, a tree that the tree, I might be getting this wrong, but if the tree was not all that healthy, the roots weren't all that healthy of the tree, but the, but the branch was a good branch, they would actually cut the branch off and then graft it into a healthier tree, and then that would, that would produce more olives. And so what Paul is saying here is using that illustration is he's saying that, that being cut off does not necessarily mean it's over. In fact, it might even be for a, a greater purpose. And so Paul uses the analogy of this tree. He's saying, look, in this, yes, in the, in, God has, quote, cut off the people of Israel, okay, but this is not permanent. This is more like what happens when you cut off a, an olive branch and then graft it in again. So he uses this entire illustration in this passage precisely to, to point out that this is not permanent, that God's plan is, is to make salvation available for all that there is no distinction. God does not favor any one particular race, one particular people over another, that it is available to all. But because of this, this is when, what emerges in this passage here. What emerges in this passage is a roadblock to salvation. A roadblock, something that can hinder our ability to be in communion and be in fellowship with God. That's what emerges in this passage is a roadblock to salvation, to experiencing the fullness of communion with God. Um, some of you will probably remember, I guess it was last year, when Rivervale Road was blocked off for a long time. And so there was, a, there was a roadblock, and you could not get through. You were cut off. And in the same sense, what this passage highlights for us is that there is, in particular, a heart attitude that can block us from receiving the fullness of salvation from God. And what emerges in this passage, this roadblock is simply this, pride. Pride is perhaps the greatest roadblock to being able to experience the fullness of salvation, being able to experience the fullness of what God has for us. Verse 20, uh, yeah, verse 20 here, it says, at the second half of verse 20, it just simply says, do not be arrogant, but be afraid. 
Do not be arrogant. And the, and the word there is a word that in, is used throughout the New Testament, and it really just means high. So in, in one place, at least, it's used to refer to a high mountain. So it's saying, do not be high. In other words, do not see yourself as above others. Do not look down on others in any particular fashion. That's what pride is. It's looking down on others and seeing them as less than, right? Or in some sense, seeing them as more abandoned by God than you, as farther from God, as somehow there's something about them that is less than in, in God's eyes and you are above them. And this is, this is pride. And what Paul is warning them against is precisely that, that that is what can hinder your fellowship with God. Turn with me, if, if you want to, you can all just read it to you. But this is uh, the book of Luke, chapter 15. And in this passage, we read the story of, it's a famous story, the story of the prodigal son. But what's interesting is actually, what's perhaps the most interesting about this story is the second part of the story. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read it to you because this story really highlights what pride looks like. This is Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus tells this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off, <clears throat> set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now that's the, that's the story that, that many of us know in some fashion or another, and that's usually where we, we leave it. And of course, it's this amazing story, and it's this amazing story about God's grace, and it's this amazing story about precisely what I just said, and that is that salvation comes from God, right? This is a story in which the father represents God, right? And so the, the, younger, the, the younger son, what does he do? He turns away from the father and tries to save himself, he goes out on his own. That's what it's symbolizing, him going out to try to save himself. And of course, as he goes out to save himself, it doesn't work, right? This is what the story is telling us. And so he comes back to the father, and the father 
the Father's grace welcomes him in. And this is beautiful story about the grace of God, that when we come to him, when we acknowledge that salvation comes from him, he welcomes us back into his presence. But that's not where the story ends. And in fact, it's not even why Jesus told the the, the parable. The next part is actually the central part and why Jesus tells it in the first place. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son, so it was the younger son that went off, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Now notice what's going on here. Notice what's going on here. So the son comes home, the father throws this huge party, and we need to remember that this party represents salvation. That's what the party represents. It represents salvation. And what we need to notice is that the older brother is cut off from salvation. He's cut off from this celebration. And why is he cut off? Because of his pride. His pride will not allow him to go in. We see the whole story of the prodigal son is a story that reminds us that pride is a roadblock to salvation. Listen, nothing, nothing will hinder your spiritual growth quite like pride. Nothing will hinder your ability to become more and more the person that God wants you to be. Nothing will hinder your ability to really find true joy more than pride. It doesn't matter how much you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you serve in the church. If there is pride, it will be a roadblock to your ability to experience the fullness of life that God has for you. And so Paul is warning them back in our passage, he's warning them against pride. This is precisely what he's saying will enable you to be cut off from the salvation that God gives. And actually in particular, particularly what Paul is dealing with in this passage is actually racial pride. He's dealing with racial pride. He's dealing with racism, actually. This this idea of looking down on those who are ethnically different than you. Uh, This is actually a, a theme that emerges throughout the New Testament. You find both Jesus and Paul dealing with racial issues and racial pride. And what we're talking about is a tension between Jews and Gentiles, and what you actually find is Jesus and Paul, you'll, you'll find them rebuking the pride that these peoples have, right? So in the ministry of Jesus, primarily what you find in the ministry of Jesus is Jesus actually rebuking the Jews for their pride, for their racist attitude towards the Gentiles. 
One of the biggest problems that the Jews had with Jesus is precisely that he was hanging out with Gentiles. And they, they called them Gentile sinners. They were beneath them. They were underneath them. And so one of the problems that they had with Jesus is precisely because he was calling them out for this, this proud attitude, this sort of this racist attitude towards the Gentiles. And of course, you find the same thing in Paul's writing. You'll find Paul rebuking, similarly rebuking the Jews he himself was a Jew, and he rebukes them in the book of Galatians, for example, rebuking them for a sort of racist attitude towards the Gentiles. And then here, we find it going the other way. Actually, in this passage, Paul is actually rebuking the Gentiles for racist attitudes towards the Jews. And it's important to understand the context in which this was written This letter was probably written, again, in the year 55 AD. And what's instructive about that is that uh, about 15 years earlier, in uh, in the year 41 AD, the Roman emperor kicked the Jews out of Rome. Uh, And and so what happened was that the early Christian community in, in Rome became almost entirely Gentile, which was unique. Because in the early church, in the early Christian community, uh, it was most of the early Christian communities were primarily Jewish, right? They started, it started off as a Jewish movement. Uh, the, the disciples were all Jewish, so on and so forth. Paul was Jewish. It started off as a, a Jewish movement, and there was tension with allowing the Gentiles to come in and be a part of that movement. Now, so what's unique about the Roman situation is that at this time period, The Jews have been out of the city for quite some time, and so what seems to have happened is that the church in Rome had become very predominantly Gentile, and the Gentiles, it seems like, maybe they'd kind of gotten used to that. And so what happened then is in the year 54 AD, the Jews were welcomed back. So Paul's writing this about a year after the Jews are are welcomed back into Uh, back into Rome, and so what seems to have been happening is that now the Gentiles are having difficulty letting the the, the Jewish Christians back in, and so Paul is warning them. He's warning them against this sort of racial prejudice against the Jews, and actually what he's saying is if, if you take that sort of prideful attitude, you're doing what they were doing to you. It's not any different, and that pride will hinder you, will be a roadblock to salvation. And so today, we just have to, we have to raise this again, right? The issue of racism. Racism, what it is, is it's a form of pride. Racism is a form of pride. It's when, it's when you look down on those who are ethnically different than you. You see them even perhaps at a subconscious level as somehow being less than you, somehow less favored than you, perhaps less gifted than you. You see them somehow as in God's eyes, not quite as valuable as you are. And I think this is one of these things I've been reflecting on this all week. I'll be honest, this is one of the most difficult sermons that I've preached in a while because this is such a, a sensitive issue. But I really think, I think it's really important that each and every one of us look in our own hearts and see if there is racial prejudice. I think it's very important for us to look, and I suspect if we're honest, we'll discover there might be more there than we realize. Some of us, perhaps more, for some of this, this might be a significant issue. For others, it might not be as strong. But I would suspect that every single one of us, at least at some level, has some sort of a racial prejudice that our instincts, just even at the instinctual level, we will find ourselves looking down on those of 
of a different ethnicity than ourselves. And, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things we need to understand, of course, is that racial prejudice is almost always entirely irrational, right? It's almost entirely irrational. I mean, prejudice in general is usually entirely irrational. Right? I mean, prejudice means to prejudge. That's what I mean. You, you prejudge. You're judging somebody without really knowing the facts. Right? That's what it means to, to prejudge. And, and racial prejudice is, is almost always entirely irrational. But here's one of the things that we need to understand from a Christian perspective. I think this is interesting is that even if, even if there are cases where your instincts to a certain extent make sense, it's still wrong. Even if, they're, they're, even if in some sense you could see a reason why a person might feel that way, it's still wrong. It's still unloving. In other words, l- l- let me kind of put it this way, and I don't, I don't know if this is true, but I'm just using this hypothetically. The truth is I did some research on it, and of course, the evidence is is uh, is debated, right? Everything's debated. Um, but let us imagine here for a moment, and I think that this is probably likely that at any given time, in any given place, at any given time in history, you might discover it might actually be true. I'm not saying that it is. It might actually be true that at any given time or any place in history, you might find that uh, a particular ethnicity. Um, is responsible for a higher proportion of violence than other ethnicities in that, in that same area. That's possible. That's, that's very possible. That at any given time or place, you might discover that a particular ethnicity is more responsible or uh, as, as a higher uh, proportion of violence is committed by that, that racial group. That is possible. But what we need to realize is that even if that's true, it is still wrong and unloving to have prejudice towards them. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, I, was, I was doing a little bit of research and I was reading about emerald societies. And my understanding of emerald societies are that emerald societies are uh, societies of Irish, uh, uh, Irish Americans in the police force and firefighters they're comprised of uh, poli- uh, police force and firefighters of Irish descent. And these societies were formed years ago to celebrate Irish involvement uh, in, in civic affairs, to celebrate Irish culture in America, and to celebrate their involvement in law enforcement and all of this. These are emerald societies. Now, what is really ironic about that is that if you look at the, the history of law enforcement in America, it seems that at least one of the reasons uh, why cities like New York and Boston uh, formed police departments in the first place was because they, it was perceived that there was a lot of Irish crime going on, right? That the, the Irish were, were, were at least, they, and they, it may be true, Irish, maybe they were contributing a more crime, uh, you know, percentage-wise. I don't, we don't really know. It may have just been perception. But let's even imagine for the sake of argument, that it's true that the Irish were causing more of the problems. Here's what I want to say. <clears throat> I asked you to imagine yourself walking down the streets of New York, walking down the streets of New York in 1852, and I said, if you came across a guy named Kevin Hanley, you go to Dublin, and there are lots of Hanleys in the phone book, right? If you came across a Kevin Hanley 
you might be suspicious of him. And it's possible that those instincts wouldn't even be totally irrational. There might even be some basis for it. But it's still wrong. It's still unloving for a couple of reasons. First of all, what you have to realize is that whatever prejudice you feel towards some other person of another ethnicity, what you need to realize is that that could just as easily be you. You could just as easily be the one who is part of an ethnicity that is receiving that, that, those prejudicial attitudes. Maybe you happen to live in a time and a place where that isn't the case, but at other times in history, that would have been you, and maybe in the future, that would be you. So we need to realize this. We need to realize that that, that could just as easily happen to you. And, and secondly, here's what we need to realize, and this is, this is where the gospel really comes into it. Even if your instincts have some sort of rational basis for feeling that way, you are still called to love them because the gospel is not about rationality, it's about love. The gospel is not rational. It does not make any sense that Jesus gave himself up, handed himself over to be crucified. It doesn't make any sense. But that's the point of the gospel, is that God's love prevails, even in circumstances where it doesn't make sense. So the gospel informs us that racial pride, right? This, you see, this then is a roadblock to salvation. When we harbor these attitudes towards those who are different than us, it separates us from God because the heart of the gospel is to unite people in love. So racial pride, that, that is a form of pride that can serve as a roadblock to salvation. But of course, <clears throat> there are all kind, other forms of pride as well. Uh, we could talk about sexism. Do we have, are, we, are we prejudiced towards those of a different sex? Do we find ourselves uh, not able, our, our instincts are not to trust someone of a different sex than us? Are, are, we, are we prejudiced in the sense that we, we have a tendency, you know, to not value the opinions of one sex over another? Right? These, are, these are prejudices, right, that the gospel calls us to rid ourselves. Ageism. How about ageism? Right, this is when you have a prejudice towards somebody who's a different age than you. Uh, I think this is becoming more and more a problem in our, in our country, right? <clears throat> in, in other words, basically, you, you've got uh, millennials. Uh, now, see, now I'm going to be stereotypical here. Here's the problem, right? <laughs> All right? You, have, you have young people, uh, and, and, they, and they're like, well, old people are all out of touch, Right? You can't trust an old person's opinion because they're just, they live in the wrong century, right? And so they're, they're, you were just naturally uh, predisposed towards, you know, taking their opinions and, and not taking them seriously because they're just crazy and out of touch. And then, of course, older people can have a tendency to say, you know, those young people, those millennials, they're just totally irresponsible. And, and so isn't, isn't it true that, that we, we even harbor that? We, we almost assume that. At an instinctual level, when you meet somebody of a different age, you just assume that about them. 
That's ageism. It's a, it's a form of pride. It's looking down on those who are different. There's heightism, right? Yeah, you look down on people because they're short. Don't do that. Pride, all forms of pride. <clears throat> and here's, here's the thing. What happens with pride and these sort of prejudicial attitudes is that it, it naturally leads to conflict, right? It leads to conflict. Pride always leads to conflict. When you look down on those who are different than you, it's naturally gonna lead to conflict with them. Ultimately, what it results in is moral pride. Moral pride. And this, this is when you then, you refuse to acknowledge that you might be wrong. It's always them. It's always somebody else's fault. And we're going to have a tendency to do that because of our racial prejudices, right? Well, they're always wrong because our other prejudices will lead us then to moral pride, which says, no, I'm right and they're wrong. And nothing, nothing can hinder our salvation more than pride. Refusing to acknowledge that you might be wrong. So what's the answer, right? What's the answer? The answer is humility. Humility is what tears down, tears down the barrier that hinders us from being able to experience the fullness of salvation. Humility. You know what humility includes? Humility means giving people the benefit of the doubt. That's such an important component of humility is giving people the benefit of the doubt even when it goes against your instincts, right? Our instincts say, no, no, I don't trust them, no. Humility says, no, I give them the benefit of the doubt. Humility simply is loving your neighbor as yourself. It's loving your neighbor as you would want them to love you, as I said, when you harbor prejudice towards somebody, what you need to realize is that you, you, you may be harboring it towards them now, but they could be harboring it towards you. In other words, again, if, if you're harboring prejudice towards somebody of a particular ethnicity, you need to realize that could easily be you. And maybe at a different time, at a different place, you would be the victim of that kind of prejudice. And so humility is, is loving a person as you would want to be loved. James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And you realize that verse, we always say, boy, that's such a hard thing to do. Do you know what it is that enables a person to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? It's humility. Humility is what enables you to do that because to be quick to listen, what humility does is humility says, hey, I might be wrong. (laughs) Humility says, I'm not going to come to a conclusion too quickly. I'm going to listen. You see, the reason why we don't listen is because we've already made up our mind. We've already come to a conclusion. 
And when you come to a conclusion, then, then, you, don't, then you don't listen, right? This is why it's so closely related to anger. Here's what you need to realize. When we get angry, what's happening when we get angry is that your mind is made up. You see, you'll never find a person who's angry who's still trying to come to a conclusion about what they think, right? You, you, when you get angry, what, what happens is you've already formulated your conclusion. And so th- this is why it's impo- you can't talk to an angry person, right? Why can't you talk to an angry person? It's not just because they're angry. It's because their mind's already made up. They're not listening. They've already drawn a conclusion. So humility is what enables us to listen. Humility is what enables us to not get angry. Again, you'll never get angry if you haven't come to a conclusion. (laughs) Think about that. If If you're still not sure, well, I should consider that more, you'll never get angry. I mean, maybe you'll never come to any conclusions, but you'll never get angry, right? It's impossible to become angry if you're still coming to a conclusion, and that, that requires humility. Friends, why do we resist this, though, right? Why do we resist humility? Why do we resist giving people the benefit of the doubt? Because it sounds so naive, doesn't it? You've got to be wise, Kevin. You can't trust people. It's naive to give people the benefit of the doubt. Because if you do that, what's going to happen? You're just going to get walked all over. Right? If you give people the benefit of the doubt, if you show humility, they're going to walk all over you. You're going to be crucified. The heart of the gospel. That's precisely what God has done for us. God humbled himself, and he was crucified. But through his crucifixion, it led to life. And this is what faith in the gospel is all about. It's believing that even when we are crucified, even when we are taken advantage of, even when we are run over, when we have faith in Jesus, it will ultimately lead to life. Friends, I ask you this morning, where is your pride? Where are you prejudiced? Where are, do you find yourself looking down on others, dismissing their perspective? Nothing will drive you to the gospel more than humility. Nothing will open up the floodgates of heaven quite like saying, okay, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna trust others. And I'm gonna trust that even if it goes wrong, God is with me. Will you pray with me?